AT&T ThreatTrack is a roundtable discussion of the latest network security trends and news conducted by AT&T data security analysts. Complete video of this show is available at techchannel.att.com. Hello, welcome to AT&T Threat Track for August 4th, 2014. This program provides network security highlights, discussion, and countermeasures for security threats. Uh, today, I'm joined by Matt Kaiser, one of our premier incident response handlers and malware analysts. How's it going today, Matt? I'm doing pretty well. All right, great. And uh, today, we've got two people remote. So uh, our usual remote person is Jim Clausing. How's it going over there, Jim? Not too bad, trying to get back in the saddle after being on vacation for two weeks. All right, well, that's always good to get some vacation in when you can. And uh, we also have Brian Rexroad remote as well from the uh, Analyst Lab. How's it going over there, Brian? Going well, thanks. And uh, sorry I couldn't join you guys in Bedminster, but had some meetings in Middletown today. You know, we still have to work for a living, so here I am. Yep, yep. Um, sounds good. Okay, so um, I think the uh, first story we have was one that you were going to cover, Jim, and it's involving some suspicious types of attack traffic that people are noticing out there on the Internet. Yeah, thanks, John. Um, this one, uh, Johannes Ulrich wrote it up in a, in a blog post over on the Internet Storm Center site, but I also had seen it on my in my... Uh, logs on my home web server too and some other folks had noticed it there was some strange traffic that folks were noticing in their apache logs and one of the the big giveaways was the user agent string which was true dash apach zero day um, or uh, that plus hidden bind shell established it created some you know, conversation wondering what was going on. Did people really have a zero day for Apache um, and, and whatnot? Everybody seemed to be seeing this traffic from the same IP address, and we actually at the Internet Storm Center did hear back from their uh, hosting provider who said that you know, they disabled access the um, customer service they had been running a vulnerable service that had been exploited and they were waiting for them to clean it up what I didn't get a chance to do before uh, before it went away is in part of this traffic if in the logs you'll see um, some strange uh, characters and then you know a wget or a curl trying to download what we assume is some sort of an additional attack tool. And I've never been able to get my hands on the copy of it. The the one, uh, well, they both seem to have been taken offline before I got a chance to get a hold of it. You and I were talking a little earlier, John, and you went and took a look, and didn't you uh, find that the system actually then changed tactics and was doing some scanning for on another port? 25565 TCP. Now, you were surmising this was looking for potentially for a Minecraft, and it only did it you know, for a period of about an hour or two on, I guess, on Friday, and now has gone silent again. So 
don't really know what was up with this, uh, what they were trying to do. As I said, I haven't been able to get a hold of the tool that it looked like they were trying to download onto, uh, onto these uh, web servers, and it doesn't look like they really had an exploit that was working against uh, currently patched Apache. So, Right. Yeah, so I guess if anybody out there who's watching has some insights, that would be a good thing. Uh, uh, please reach out to us about it because uh, it seems like as of right now, it's still a little bit of a mystery. And uh, one of the, uh, just to kind of clarify some of the observations I made, in the original SANS uh, article, they mention a source IP that was acting as an attacker. And um, uh, I said, you know, I was kind of curious, well, what do we see in our data? And that's where I saw that up until uh, August 1st. So like prior to August 1st, it was scanning on port 80, probably doing this behavior that they're talking about in the article. But right on August 1st, it was doing scanning uh, exclusively, as far as I could tell, for uh, this port 25565 TCP which is associated with Minecraft, so maybe they know some Minecraft exploit that they're trying now instead or something. Obviously, there are some shenanigans going on here that we're not quite clear what it is yet. Uh, hopefully, we'll, we'll figure it out. Maybe it's just some misconfiguration in how they're trying to do their exploit and it's not working, but... It, it looks like it was a, a server, as I said, that uh, from what the hosting provider sent back to the Internet Storm Center, it looks like it was a server that had been running something vulnerable that had gotten exploited itself and then was turned into this scanner. So. All right, thanks for that one. And then uh, you also had another story that when I first saw this one, my heart sank into my stomach again because it sounds like Synology. We talked about the Synology Disk Station Manager and um, a lot of, uh, there's some various hacks for that where people have taken them over and used them for building a botnet and scanning and other types of activities. But it sounds like there's somebody's uh, doing something even a little worse uh, lately with the Synology appliances. Can you tell us more about it? Yeah, um, this one, I, my reaction was exactly the same as yours. I was going, oh no, not again. But it looks like this time what's happening, and this just showed up in the, in the Synology forums on Sunday. Uh, over the weekend, uh, August 3rd here. So this looks like a, a brand new attack, but what's happening is somebody's installing some ransomware. I've seen it variously called SynLocker or SynoLock. Basically what's happening is these, uh, uh, probably still the uh, disk stations with you know, weak passwords or whatever vulnerabilities they've been using in the past to get into them. Uh, what they're doing now is they're installing some ransomware on, on the device so that when you uh, connect to your NAS storage, uh, you get a pop-up saying they're holding all of your files for ransom, and then they start going through and encrypting uh, the files, and they ask for, I think it was 0.6 bitcoins as the ransom don't remember what that translates to in dollars today but so yeah we've we've seen the, you know the crypto locker and other variants of ransomware on windows we've seen some claiming to be that but that weren't on android and i think more recently there may have actually been some ransomware on android now they're attacking these 
these NAS devices, and that could be really nasty because you know it's your NAS where storage where you're going to potentially put a lot of your critical documents, and you know if they're going through and encrypting them. Um, that could be nasty. Yeah, that's a very strategic type of, uh, you know, go to where most of the important files are, right? You get PCs, you may or may not get a machine that has critical files on it, but more often than not, people who have some kind of network attached storage, disk array, um, are going to keep all their important stuff on there. So uh, that's the purpose of them for the most part, right? It looks like 0.6 Bitcoins is roughly $350 or not now. Wow. Yeah, that's pretty pricey compared to some of the ransomwares we've seen. My concern would be is how do I get 0.6 bitcoins to even like pay the ransom? I wouldn't even know <laughs> how to acquire that. Um, but uh, in any event, if you have to round up to the nearest one, oh. yeah. I mean, if you want me to pay cash, I can do that. But if I got to pay in bitcoins, that's that's a whole other level of like technology that I got to figure out how to pay you in that. Form. What I've found is that the uh ransomware office will actually go out of their ways to make it easy for you to figure it out. They'll give you the instructions. Here's how you buy Bitcoin or oh, here's really? all the vendors where you can buy like a Ucash prepaid card for those same kind of things. Right, they, right. They, they need to get paid. It's their right. business model. Right, right. Interesting. And I did uh, grab a quick chart on the port 5000 TCP scanning. We've been talking about this for at least the better part of this year. Uh, you can see there was definitely a much more uh, increased amount of scanning activity back in the late February, early March timeframe here, which is the big part of this spike up around the 500 million flows per hour. But there have been, you know, scanning incidences here uh, over the past. So it looks like July 4th, there was a big one that kicked off and has kind of trailed off here, uh, which might be involved related to this somehow. Uh, so obviously there are people still looking for these devices out there uh, to compromise them and obviously that's the case based on this story here. So, Although the, the, the change in those volumes, it makes me wonder a little bit if some of the machines were long compromised and only at one point maybe they were handed off to another party, like whoever owned that particular set of Synologies yeah. wasn't getting much out of it for you know Bitcoin mining or whatever they want, perhaps they were like, well, who else needs these? You sell it on the underground market, and then someone else with a, a ransomware modus operandi mm -hmm. can uh, make a lot of coin off it. Yeah, that's that's very possible. So uh, next story was one that I was going to talk about real quick. Uh, U.S. CERT actually released a bulletin. I forget what they call this. Um, it's uh, some kind of technical advisory or something bulletin, I, I believe, is what they they uh, classify them as, and it's regarding a new family of point-of-sale malware called the Backoff family. And we've talked about other point-of-sale types of malware. You know, there have been some pretty notable stories back in the late half of last year with um, the Target breach and some of these other ones. And there was, a fa I can't remember the family of that malware now, um, but similar kind of idea here. Uh, the interesting thing about this one is it's, it's a pretty good bulletin. I'd recommend you, you check out the link and read it because it actually gives a lot of good indicators too in terms of registry indicators, network indicators, things to look for to see if you've been compromised or not. But the uh, interesting thing about this one is their infection vector is uh, by scanning for remote desktop protocol services. So they're looking for all different types apparently, and this is from the article, so I don't know how much uh, of each is really being leveraged in any particular case. But they mentioned Microsoft Remote Desktop Protocol, which is the big one that we always see all the time. I'm sure Brian will have some, some slides on that or discussion about it, at least, uh, in the internet weather. Apple Remote Desktop, 
Chrome Reboot Desktop, which I wasn't even aware of, uh, Splashtop, and Pulseway, which I don't really know very well either, although I believe they're some type of either iPod or iPad, I'm sorry, iPad-based uh, uh, remote desktop and or Android, I'm not quite sure. And then the uh, log me in uh, service as well as another form of, so once they find that there's a service there for some type of uh, retail merchant that they wanna compromise here, then they'll do some brute forcing, trying to guess the password. So if you have weak passwords, well, first of all, we talk about this all the time. If it doesn't need to be publicly accessible from the internet, don't let it be. If so, only let people that are trusted source IP, so do some filtering to allow only those who need to get access to that uh, be able to get access. And if you don't need it, close it down. Uh, certainly don't use weak passwords. So basically the way this works is through weak passwords, they get onto the machine. From there, they basically have full control of the machine because a lot of those are set up as administrative anyway and then they drop this malware on. Um, the malware, it's not anything fancy, so to speak. It injects a stub into explorer.exe. Um, then it goes and uh, scrapes memory to see if it can find credit card track data in memory from purchases that have occurred, uh, which is similar to that other family of uh, malware that we had seen uh, in the target breach. And then um, does keystroke logging, which is very typical, and does your command, your typical command and control type activities to update itself or relay information up to a command and control that it's stolen and whatnot. So just one, a good one to be aware of uh, if you are in the retail merchant industry or even probably for anybody, if you have machines that, of yours that are part of your enterprise or something that you think should be protected and it's available, accessible to the internet at large by remote desktop or remote desktop type service, even SSH I would include in this category, lock it down. You don't really need that to be open to the world. Uh, make sure that that's protected because that's, that's uh, how we see a lot of machines get compromised uh, in our experience. I think we see that a lot in the incident response handling uh, uh, cases that we work. Absolutely. You know, John, you mentioned if, if it doesn't have to be exposed to the internet, then, you know, I would say that even if it does have to be exposed to the internet, you know, there's a possibility that some uh, somebody has a contractor, or, you know, if, if somebody they've uh, a vendor that they're working with that they need to do remote access into these platforms. Uh, if that's the case, put a layer in front of it, put a gateway in front of it that requires a login before they even get to the uh, the remote access. And then, you know, at the very least, at the very very least, uh, or perhaps in addition. Just reassigning that port to another is, you know, it's uh, it's an obscurity measure, but the likelihood of it being uh, picked up is uh, is less. And if there is activity against it, you will have a, it'll be much more distinct in the sense that if you use an obscure port, you know, if you're on 5900 or 3389, there's going to be a whole pile of noise there. By putting it on an obscure port, it doesn't make it more secure, but it's going to be make it more recognizable when somebody's hitting you. Right, absolutely. Yeah, even like you said, a little security through obscurity will work um, in situations like these because it just, people aren't looking. They're looking for the, the ports that are well known for these services to be listening on, right? I wouldn't go quite so far as to say it will work, but it will help you recognize when right. somebody is targeting that device. All right, right. Okay, right. Good point. So it, it makes me wonder if, if RDP or these other remote desktop protocols were turned on for these devices, you know. Are these managed by the people who own them, operate the you know the restaurant, the bar where the point of sale terminal exists, or perhaps they're they're managed by a third party company that 
you know, you have a problem with your terminal, you're not going to be the one who's actually administering. It's that third party, and it, it falls onto them to actually have. Right, that's a good point. So we don't know, right? Especially if it's some kind of retail chain, mm -hmm. it could be that they all have their own individual setups for that location for internet access, and they're not part of some corporate network. They just have internet access, mm -hmm. and then maybe some, you know, central authority for that chain is RDPing in to do updates and whatnot. Uh, but still, even then, you should be able to filter it to only those ones. But it's probably just being lazy, lazy security practices. Uh, uh, you know, it could respect. be just uh, you know a lack of appreciation for what the issues are. And right. you know, even if uh, it, I think the the case, uh, for example, a small business is going to probably contract this out to an organization. So if you if you're doing anything like that, ask some questions. Ask them how they're doing some things to make sure that you have an understanding of. Um, you know, what potential issues may exist and uh, try to hold them to uh, a higher standard. Yep, absolutely. I agree. All right. The next story is one that you were uh, looking at, Matt, and I guess some people have been looking into Tor. I know there's been a lot of talk about Tor lately and trying to break it and whatnot. Um, and there's been some discussion that somebody possibly has found some sort of uh, hack that can kind of de-anonymize sessions on the Tor network in isolated cases. So according to the Tor project operators, this has been done. This was okay. successfully performed against the Tor network. As to who did it, it's speculation at this point. We do know that there was a talk that was pulled from Black Hat about the Tor network and de-anonymization. It hasn't been conclusively linked to the same researchers. We also know that Russia had put out a bounty for anyone who can attack the Tor network successfully. That all aside, what did happen is uh, a combination of two types of attacks. Uh, one's called a Sybil attack, uh, where you have an anonymized network and you own both ends of it, so you can see traffic going in and out and do some correlation on that. The second one was actually pretty clever. There's, without going too deep into the weeds, there is a, um, a, a, a flavor of the protocol itself that reaches from end to end. You can send messages between Tor nodes from one node to the next, or from one end of the circuit to the other. And what was happening was, Users connecting at the entry guard were connecting to hidden services on the other end, and only that, that far end, that exit node, should have been able to know what the actual hidden service was. What's happening is there's actually a way to send messages all the way back through the network to that original entry guard. Now, if you own both of those, this is a messaging, um, this is, it's, it's, a, it's a covert protocol, basically, turn, using two different types of messages to encode data mm -hmm. simply because it's a one or a zero or, or a symbol or a code of that way. So what was happening was the malicious exit nodes encoded the name of that hidden service in traffic that went all the way back to the entry guard. So now you've got the name of the service, the hidden service, being passed all the way to the entry guard who knows who the original person connected to the Tor network is. So now you're de-anonymizing users of those hidden services right. by the original IP address. Yeah, so I'm going to try to restate I know that I, I went a, way, little, yeah. a little bit more, hopefully, a little bit more uh, uh, clearly. But there are three types of nodes, so to speak, in the Tor network. You've got an entry node, you've got a relay node, and there's a bunch of relay nodes. Well, there's a bunch of entry and relay nodes. But in the process, you go into an entry node who talks to a relay node, the entry node only knows uh, who's making a connection to it. He doesn't know anything about the type of the connection that's being made or where they want to get to. The relay node kind of does know where they want to get to, but not who's asking it. He only knows the IP of the entry node, not 
the far end thing here. And then the uh, the last thing is the last hop, which is kind of like a relay node anyway, but he's handles setting up the actual endpoint of the connection to wherever the person's trying to get to. So if you're a bad guy and you can get an entry node and a relay node as part of two components as part of that whole path there, they can use these relay message protocols to kind of send messages back from the relay node encoded that says what they're asking is to get to such and such domain name. And now the entry node, if you have a rogue entry node, can decode those little messages and say, okay, now I do know what this guy was trying to get to because I have a rogue relay node on the inside that's telling me kind of thing. Uh, so that's, hopefully I explained, I don't know. It's a complicated topic, but in any event, if you get enough of these and you can get uh, enough of these injected into the Tor network and kind of control the flow and make sure that you have an entry and relay node at least as part of the uh, communication, you'll be able to at least decode who those people are and what they're trying to get to. Yep. Um, so there's the denomination factor there. Uh, so in theory, it sounds like it would work and they're using some kind of layer in the Tor protocol, which allows you to embed some data in there uh, that gets sent back and forth between the nodes. But it's not really supposed to be used for that, but people are roguely using it to do yeah. that. So the, 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 the flaw has been patched, and anyone who's using Tor ought to update to the latest version. Oh, okay. Uh, so it has been pretty much solved at this point. Um, it's interesting. I think we're going to see more of these attacks in the future. It's, it's a high-value target, and you know, we've known that it's, it's, it works for what it's for. Now, whether or not you believe that Tor is a, a technology that's used for freedom and, and you know, struggles against oppression or a tool for allowing criminal activity, you know, it's here to stay. Well, just like the internet, it's used for both, right? Mm -hmm. There might, the, the, um, the percentages might be a little flip-flopped a little bit more on the, uh, the Tor network, but, uh, and I guess we should mention what the Tor network is. It is an anonymization network kind of built on top of the internet and you can use special software to become a member of the Tor network and route your traffic over it. And it helps anonymize who you are and where you're going to, uh, if, for those who, who don't know what Tor is. Um, in any event, uh, interesting story. Uh, kind of interesting that the Black Hat talk was canceled, which makes me wonder what was going on with that. Um, but also good to hear that it sounds like it's been fixed too. So, um, uh, you know, we hopefully, even though there's some rogue actors out there using this and there's some legitimate people, ideally you want your stuff to be secure. You want it to operate the way it's supposed to be and not be hackable. So, um, uh, you know, kudos to Tor for addressing it and getting it fixed. And then we have a viewer mailbag question. Uh, so we had someone write in uh, saying, I'm seeing lots of articles about a researcher who has discovered that USB devices like mice keyboards and thumb drives being extremely hackable. What can I do to protect myself? Um, my initial reaction was don't plug in USB devices to your computer that you don't know, right? Only use your own stuff that you trust, especially with USB thumb drives. But I think you had a different spin on this as well, Matt. So a little bit more detailed sure. thought on that. So this is actually research that's going to be coming out at Black Hat soon. They're calling it bad USB. The, the real crux of the issue is that every USB thumb drive and practically every USB device contains a small microcontroller or microchip. Mm -hmm. It's a processor. You know, It runs arbitrary code just like any other processor does. Uh, and what can you, you can do is you can, if you can reprogram the, these processors, they can behave in strange and unexpected ways. For example, turning a USB stick into uh, what's called a human interface device, or HID, 
Uh, this is a trick that's been around for a little while. Um, I know Hack5, the USB rubber ducky, does the same thing. And I know Iron Geek was doing this a while back. But basically, you plug in the thumb drive, your computer will recognize it as a keyboard, and it'll start immediately typing as if it were a keyboard. So it will you know, fire up its own command shell, start adding itself as a user, blah, 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 blah. Basically, right. as if someone who is incredibly fast was at the keyboard. I mean, this, you can do the same sorts of things as long as you understand the USB protocol. You can do some very interesting things. Here in particular, we're talking about infecting machines. This is the bad USB attack. You can, you know, you plug into a thumb drive and based on certain conditions of the machine, maybe it will push a, a payload or it'll exploit something. Um, but you can do other things as well. I mean, it's, it's basically like having a completely different computer plugged into your computer with free reign. Other really cool research in this area was done by, I believe it was Travis Goodspeed with his face dancer device. He actually came up with a USB device that you can um, plug it in and use it like a regular USB device. But if anyone tries to use forensic software, which treats the, the drive sectors a completely different way, it will return a completely different set of data. So you've got a, a USB device that defends itself against you know, forensic. forensic yeah. Um, and I think Bunny Wang had the same kind of idea with SD cards, which as well have a small microcontroller inside of them. Most flash memory, I think practically all flash memory has a small microcontroller to control the, it's called wear leveling, just the way that the memory is, is designed to sort of allow you to have an interface that treats it like a regular hard drive instead of as a bunch of different cells of memory. Um, there's a lot of information and I think it's going to be a really exciting field to see where this goes next. Right, right. I probably oversimplify things. Okay. STDs come to mind here, and, and I, don't, I probably shouldn't go into too many details of that analogy, but think about it for a couple of minutes, and I think it'll yeah. again. Yep. Well, it also goes back to our story that we covered either last week or the week before, where you know having physical access to a device basically is game over. Mm -hmm. So if someone can you know coerce you or without your knowledge insert a USB device into your machine, you know, it's game over. They have the potential to, you know, do whatever they want to the machine. I, I had actually pulled up the, those uh, immutable laws of security, the 10 right. immutable laws of security on, uh, I'm looking at it here, and uh, you're exactly right, John. The, uh, the, the law that applies here is actually the third law. If a bad guy has unrestricted physical access to your computer, it's not your computer anymore. And I think the subtlety, now this was written back in 2008. And I think actually the original version of this was perhaps written in, back in uh, 2000. I'm not exactly sure about that. But ultimately what it comes down to is uh, perhaps there's a little subtle modification that's needed here because I'm not sure they really anticipated the distinction between uh, physical access or, you know, I think, you know, the intent was to really uh, have... Um, uh, USB devices not uh, be able to take full control of computers, but uh, there are clearly some flaws here, and perhaps uh, there's some hope for improvement in the future. Well, and the other thing is, you know, we've seen in the past um, you know, devices that got infected um, before they got shipped to the consumer, mm -hmm. and, you know, if somebody m wants to maliciously program the firmware of any USB device before you know before it reaches the consumer plugging in a brand new one that you just opened the package on doesn't necessarily mean you're safe right yeah compromising the supply chain is always the big you know if you can get into the supply chain then you really could really trick people you know even like us you go to the store and buy a mouse or a keyboard 
or even a thumb drive, you're pretty much thinking, okay, well, I'm relatively assured that between the time this came from the manufacturer, the time that I'm opening the package here, that no one's tampered with it. Um, but if they could, you know, affect that, or if they're extremely motivated here, they could potentially, you know, compromise it and put something on there, and you think it's perfectly clean. You know, right, even the most ardent security person might not be able to pick up on that very easily. Unless so. you're, you can't audit that firmware. That's the thing. You can't yeah. use antivirus and scan it either. It's completely, you know, it's a level that you're you're not even operating at. So hopefully, I don't think I don't perceive that this is a very prevalent problem yet. So I'm going to hope that it's not going to become one, because uh, that would be something to be really worried about. But it is something to be aware of. Certainly, USB devices have been talked about. I know we've talked about it as a vector for infection, just in general, for at least the past six years, and trying to figure out how to control people's ability to still use thumb drives in their, you know, company laptop um, and not get compromised, or whether we should even allow that at all. You know, I'm sure a lot of organizations struggle with that kind of issue. Um, so. One of those things to be wary of. Yeah, and, yep. and you know, perhaps there's a uh, opportunity to take some cues from the medical industry. I know they've uh, uh, at least tried to pay attention to some of the uh, improprieties that can exist in the uh, supply chain. There's certainly a lot of money in the medical industry associated with things. If you can come out with something that appears to be something that it isn't, they still have problems from time to time. But uh, you know, that's uh, that's perhaps they've uh, learned some lessons that the. Uh, supply chain and the uh, computer industry can uh, pick up on uh, as these problems become more prevalent. Right, right. All right, good one. Uh, thanks for uh, sending that in, whoever did send it. I'm not quite sure, but please send us in uh, more feedback. We always like to hear from uh, the viewers uh, and answer their questions during the show. So uh, let's move it over to the internet weather report. And I think, Brian, you were going to cover this for us today? Yes, absolutely. And uh, as usual, you know, I, I wouldn't describe this week as a significant set of events associated with the Internet weather. We've had what I would describe as relatively calm weather among the storms. And so uh, perhaps if you're from Florida, you know exactly what I mean. You expect the thunderstorms in the afternoon. Uh, we actually have that, that sort of <laughs> behavior here. Uh, but nothing really out of, out of the usual expected activity. But let me explain a few things that we have seen. Uh, first of all, that, actually one little revelation. So first of all is uh, scan probes on port 1900 UDP. Now we've been reporting this for some time now. This is SSDP, so this is a uh, basically a protocol to facilitate, it's used as a part of uh, universal plug and play. What we're seeing here are probes from a U.S. security service company and some Russian security service company, but we also picked on, up on some new probing activity, and this actually more recent spikes from a source in the Netherlands, and uh, we've seen this actual, this one source, it's one IP address associated with this. We've also seen it in the relatively recent past, probing on ports 1900 UDP, 5300 UDP, 123 UDP, as well as the uh, 1900 that uh, we're talking about here. And uh, actually, it has a little bit of a curious reverse DNS, and you know, John, I shared that with you. It uh, clearly looks like, uh, well, let's put it this way, it doesn't look like the security service companies that we were looking at earlier. Right, uh, right. So the other interesting aspect of this, it is relatively recent activity that started up and not apparent in these graphs here because these are pretty much overwhelmed by the activity of the security service companies. And, uh, but it is clear that set of ports, those are the ones that we consider to be the most significant from a, uh, the point of view of potential for uh, reflective denial service attacks. 
And uh, sure enough, it appears that there is some denial service attack activity using port 1900 UDP as the, the reflection vector here. So this is a, a basically a new revelation for us. We've been looking for this in the past, and it does seem to be showing up. And we're showing up in the gigabit range of activity now. They're using a lot of sources for this, up in, upwards near 20,000 different sources to be able to generate this amount of traffic. But uh, the significant is they're starting to, uh, starting to show up here. So be paying attention to, first of all, if you're hosting anything on port 1900 UDP, uh, SSDP most likely, you want to probably pay attention to what's on your internet gateways. Partly, not just because you want to protect yourselves, but if there could be some uh, traffic loading issues that might come from that uh, and do your part to protect uh, others from those, uh, those attacks. But uh, secondly, if you see you know, a denial service attack, don't be surprised if you see source port 1900 UDP as a part of that and uh, be prepared or at least understand whether you're in a position to be able to block that activity just wholly right off the bat or if you uh, need to be able to let it through in some places. I think for the most part, you won't need to use 1900 UDP, but uh, it's better to be prepared ahead of time than to uh, be in a reaction mode once you get under attack. Uh, next item here, uh, again, consistent with what we've been reporting uh, for the last several weeks here. It's just a, sort of an updated view of the uh, graph activity, but this scan probes on port 53 TCP, and uh, that's associated with DNS, generally used for zone transfers. Uh, we had been uh, suspecting that perhaps it was being used to map the DNS on the Internet. I think it's something a little bit beyond that here, perhaps just maybe mapping services, but there are some other ports that these same sources are scanning, port 21, port 22, port 23, 25, 53, 80, 443, 33, 89, and 80, So what this kind of suggests to me, and you know, it's just, it's really subject to interpretation, but perhaps looking for any interface that's suggestive of an enterprise access to the internet. Perhaps once they uh, find one of these ports that's active, they'll go in deeper looking for perhaps other ports that are active. So uh, it suggests to me, uh, you know, looking for an enterprise, uh, be proxy interfaces or web interfaces or email interfaces, that sort of thing, and then uh, perhaps dig in, in further once they find those. And uh, this is primarily a single address out of China that's uh, doing this probing activity, and they're cycling through different portions of the day uh, just mostly hitting a number of addresses in that uh, in that short portion of the day. I'm not sure if this is intended to be uh, sort of a low and slow activity or what the uh, intent around these uh, spikes in activity are, uh, but they certainly do exist. Next item here is uh, scan probes on port 9090 TCP. Now this is one that, uh, you know, I'm just, actually it's showing 180 days of activity here. And the reason I thought it would be useful to show 180 days of activity was just to really kind of emphasize that although we're seeing sort of a spike in activity here, this is not terribly unusual activity so that is scanning on this particular port. It's associated with a WebSM, which is a web basically system management interface. I saw at least one use article from IBM on this, so I'm not exactly sure if it's an IBM-specific thing. Uh, these probes happen to be coming from uh, a source in China as well. Next item here is the top 10 most probed ports. Not really any surprises here. You know, we've been talking about this uh, internet of insecure things that are uh, subject to attack. Uh, we talked a little bit about the Synology 
this station manager earlier, although we're not seeing a lot of scanning activity and the graph showed it earlier, we're not seeing a lot of scanning activity on port 5000 right now, but we are certainly seeing uh, at the top of the list here, port 22 TCP, 23 TCP following, 1433 TCP, 445 TCP, 3389, that's a remote desktop protocol, 53 UDP, 80 TCP, 3306 TCP, and 8080 DCP. Now, it seems like there's been a little bit of a surge in uh, the, looking for the databases. That is 1433 and is uh, usually on this uh, list. That's Microsoft SQL database, but it seems like the Microsoft SQL over the last couple of weeks has uh, popped in. That's the 3306 TCP. So. Uh, what My I thought sequel. would be useful is to just take a little bit deeper, deeper look at this, and this is going back a year and uh, counting the number of probes on an hourly basis associated with the uh, uh, targeting, specifically port 3306. And indeed, it does look like over the last, I would say, four or five months, there's been a, uh, and you could argue maybe it's been for the course of this year, but there seems to be a, an increasing trend in the number of probes on that port, and I, you know, I just kind of eyeballed a trend line here to, to uh, sort of illustrate that. Yeah, just to correct you quickly, Brian, you were saying Microsoft SQL, but it's actually MySQL? Yeah, I, uh, well, thank you for the correction. I, I seem to have a bad habit here, but it is MySQL database, and that's actually a product owned by Oracle now, uh, and it came originally out of the open source community. So. Uh, I want to make a distinction. 1433 is Microsoft SQL database, and 3306 is uh, MySQL database. And next item here is the top 10 most sources doing the probing. We continue to see port 443 TCP uh, as that source. Basically, lots of sources out of Argentina that are doing a lot of probing activity. Actually, not a whole lot of probing activity, but certainly uh, prominent in the number of sources that are doing the probing. Uh, within that, it's actually uh, quite low and slow. And then uh, that's followed by port 23 TCP, 445, 17015, which is uh, innocuous activity, port 80 TCP, 8080 TCP, and then we uh, see the zero-axis P2P activity kind of popping up back here. I don't think that's necessarily because of a growth activity. It may be actually uh, because it was just under the radar previously. So uh, perhaps we need to take a little bit closer look and make sure that we're not seeing a growth in zero access activity. Although we have uh, been seeing indications that zero access botnet is active again, at least in some capacity. So that's, uh, that covers it for the internet weather. I'll pass it back to you, John, to close things out. All right, thanks, Brian. So that's the show for today. Uh, if you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at threattrack at list.att.com. Uh, to get notice of new episodes, you can follow us on Twitter uh, our handle is at ThreatTrack, and the ThreatTrack video is available on att.com slash ThreatTrack and on YouTube at the AT&T Check Channel. You just got to search for AT&T Check Channel on YouTube. Um, there's also an audio-only version uh, on iTunes that you can check out as well. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Jim. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, Brian. Uh, I'm John Hogaboom. We'll be back next week with a new episode. Until then, keep your network safe. Views expressed on AT&T ThreatTrack are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of AT&T or any other person or entity.